0: Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Zipiniak. Hey, Kit.
1: Everyone, thanks for tuning in again this week. We're so glad that you are able to join us now online on our YouTube channel and over the radio or even on your favorite podcast app. Remember, if you ever miss an episode, just find us online, go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Jason, I know we've got a great interview ahead. You want to tell our guests a little bit about it?
0: Yes, we'll be joined today by Dr. Joseph Capizzi. He is the director of the Institute for Humane Ecology at the Catholic University of America. We're going to be talking about what it means to build a healthy, humane ecology, what that is, and what some of the challenges that are posed to that by big tech and the emerging security state, among other things. It's going to be a great conversation. I'm excited to kind
1: of dig into it and really learn a little bit more. I can't wait to hear what he has to say. I will be back at the end of the program with this week's action item.
0: I'm now joined by Dr. Joseph Capizzi. He's professor of moral theology and executive director of the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. Welcome to the Bridge Builder program. It's great to be with you, Dr. Capizzi. Yeah, Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Tell us first of all, though, about the Institute for Human Ecology. Um, We are an
2: institute that's uh, six years old at Catholic University, and our mission really is to study the conditions of human flourishing. Um, That's really what human ecology is about. The kinds of conditions that are present in societies that help human beings uh, flourish uh, as they're supposed to course, we we attend as well to the impediments, you know, the things that are obstacles to human flourishing. And we do this from a variety of disciplines, primarily politics, theology, philosophy, and economics, but from all of the disciplines. Um, So uh, we get to think about a lot of different things, beauty, art, political conditions of our culture, literature. um, And we bring undergraduates, graduate students, faculty, uh, faculty from outside the university together around these
0: issues. Um, it's a very exciting mission. What are some of the challenges in, in asserting truths and, and proclaiming that certain things are good and that certain things are bad, both within the church, but also to a wider culture as well? First of all, there are many challenges, but in a way,
2: our approach is to speak in terms of opportunities. Uh, and I, I think we have unique opportunities that are present to us. Like you spoke about truth, right? And typically people will just you know start a harangue about you know we live in a post-truth culture and so on of course that's true but part of what's interesting about um, our culture is that even though a lot of people you know sort of accept this idea that you know we're in a post-truth world even that phrase right is sort of making the claim about the the good of the true right the good of truth a kind of longing for truth and so what we try to do is enter the enter into the middle of conversations in uh in a, an appealing way a positive way and say yes we get it like we all are striving to understand true things and we we take those opportunities we do it. i hope with civility and and some some measure of grace and try to engage engage people where they are people from different perspectives Uh, we don't compromise on our views but generally we've had very positive conversations we've had positive longer-term engagements with people around ideas that interest them
0: and us and where we can build the kind of common ground to move our culture forward what do you propose are the cornerstones of a healthy human ecology? The first thing is truth,
2: right? I mean, the first thing is the the real, right? Identifying things that we take as givens from which we can uh, build uh, a society, right? Build families, uh, build local communities, and so for, the first thing is just to try to identify, name, and identify these givens um, that we share, and and. Obviously, there are challenges around this, right? Even certain biological givens that in the past we all took for granted right now are, you know, kind of up in the air. People are raising questions about them. So truth is a key component of that. Another component of it is freedom. Uh, However you think about the issue of freedom, and there are obviously varieties of positions, freedom is a great human good. Uh, Everybody has recognized that scripture itself recognizes the good of human freedom the Catholic perspective on freedom connects itself to truth, right? So we recognize freedom as a good, we, try, we do our best to try to promote it in its contact with what is in fact is true and try to preserve it. So that's another you know, sort of given. Uh, from my own like, studies, a particular interest here would be uh, something like order, security, justice, right? Uh, the sort of principles of life in political community that often we take for granted. Right. We just sort of assume that they'll be there Uh, during the pandemic. uh, We've had challenges to it and we can see how challenging order and security and justice, even in a country that's as well formed as the United States historically has been, especially by comparison to others, right, just challenging it severely upends people's cause you know causes anxieties uh it causes discord right uh and all of a sudden this thing that we've taken for granted for so long now we realize its value uh, so th- those are just some of the uh, the
0: constituents of what flourishing uh that needs when we're talking about e- ecology pope francis yeah. notes in laudato see the interconnectedness of things and it seems that one of the great blessings that the Catholic Church can bring to the discourse is is putting back together, reintegrating what politics and the culture want to pull apart. What are are some of the key things that you're doing at the Institute to kind of put things back together? And maybe one example would be um, talking about the family, for example, and thinking about the ways in which economics impacts the family. So integrating traditionally progressive or liberal concern with social conservatism at the same time.
2: I mean, it's a great way to describe it, right? We're trying to reintegrate what has been disintegrated or what is always moving towards a kind of disintegration. And, and the first thing, of course, we're a university, right? And so as a, an institute within a university, the first thing we do is we try to reintegrate the disciplines, right? So hold together different disciplines so they can attend to these issues from their unique perspectives, from the perspective of history or English literature or um, philosophy, theology, politics, economics, law, right? We're trying to reintegrate these things. This integration that we see across our culture, right, expresses itself in different ways. And one of them is one you have touched on, right? Which is to, is to sort of separate out economics as a kind of unique concern, a science that um, is impenetrable from other perspectives. And as we know from the classical philosophical tradition, Economics starts out as a branch of the philosophical tradition of political and philosophical reflection. We try to reintegrate that and the family is a great locus for seeing the interconnectedness of parental responsibility within the home of the flourishing of families, the having of children, the relationship of that to ongoing communities, to communities own uh, conceptions of themselves as enduring realities. Right. Um, The the communities think of themselves as essentially immortal. Um, It's hard not to think that. Right. And of course, having more children, having healthy families contributes to that. So it's reintegrating it in precisely the ways that you've
0: indicated. Economics, ecology. They have that Greek root, the oikos um, in them, the household. That's right. Um, you know, it, does, is that maybe a bridge in terms of thinking about the interconnectedness of these things? It is. And of course,
2: from the Catholic perspective, following the Aristotelian perspective, we think of the human being as a social being, right? As a being who, for whom the social is an essential component of what we are, right? We are people in communion, we would say, from a theological perspective. So a community right that is particularly intimate to all of us is family and it has served in political reflection for centuries as a model of or even an analog to political community and the capacity of going back and forth between thinking about like for instance political authority in relationship to parental authority has always been an important value and actually um, you know some have argued, and I think rather convincingly, that the crisis of authority that we're actually experiencing too, which is one of our impediments to human flourishing, is related in part to the demise of parental authority, or almost like the unintelligibility of parental authority in communities that be, that are increasingly individual-oriented. They can't quite understand how parental authority operates, and then all of a sudden you lose this critical model for thinking about how political authority operates, right? So there's... There's challenges there, and again,
0: opportunities. Humane ecology, sometimes you hear words like human scale. When we're discussing a humane ecology, thinkers like E.F. Schumacher, small is beautiful. But what what is the intersection between thinking about human scale environments, uh, particularly the built environment, business, um, various enterprises, even churches? What's that interaction between human scale thinking and humane ecology?
2: In a way, you know, I, I think we'd have to go a little bit more deeply, uh, you know, moving forward into what the church sees about these kinds of questions, or what is revealed in scripture, right? Um, what we understand, like sort of theologically, be revealed, and a, a lot of the, a lot of the movement of the past century or so has been to sort of focus on the human being, right, as the, as the, the locus of revealing meaning right, for how, how societies should form themselves and the values that they should pursue. And there's great there's great advantages uh, in doing that, right, in, in thinking in terms of the human being uh, as the measure, in other words, of all things good. From our perspective, right, from the Christian perspective, we think of the human being particularly as revealed in Christ, right? It's not merely the human being that we can study through the empirical sciences, um, even even philosophically and so on, but it's actually this being that is revealed to us in Christ, in Scripture, in the life of you know Jesus Christ, in the you know the community that has worshipped him and for now millennia, all is a reaction, uh, obviously, to certain developments in the 19th century and early 20th century that seem to lose focus on the person, right? Um, but. What you're seeing with Pope Francis, and I think you see it also in Benedict and, and, and in later encyclicals of uh, John Paul II, is while this focus has been great and a kind of corrective, what one of the deficiencies of it has been the detachment of the human being from the world he inhabits, right? And, and the world as a created world, right? As something given to us by a good and gracious God. That's what human ecology is. as I understand it, is trying to correct for, right? Well, let's reattach the human being, replace the human being in the spaces that he occupies, right? The spaces in which he finds his flourishing and its connectedness, the connectedness of the human being, the human being as uh, a corporate you or a social being to the world of which he is part as a creature. So there's been a kind of emphasis on our place in an order that is much larger than we are. And then the, the the kinds of questions, which you probably even know more than I do about like human scale and so on, um, would really be derivative of that replacement of the human person into creation of which we are a special part, but still a part.
0: You know, speaking of humane ecology, it, it seems that you know, Pope Francis and Benedict, like you mentioned, Really mentioned right relationship is the essential to understanding human ecology. But more and more, we seem detached from uh, the producers who produce the things we consume by impersonal forces: big government, big tech, big business. It's becoming more and more impersonal, especially as we migrate to DoorDash online ordering. I mean, it's just everything seems to be getting more and more impersonal. What's going on there? We were talking about right relationships, but we seem to be disconnecting from each other in a human way. And of course, the pandemic, for obvious reasons, has almost seemed to fuel that.
2: The language of impersonal right could also be substituted out for like the language of unnatural right, in essence. And and I think you and I probably should have a you know we should dwell on this for a little bit and have a conversation Mm -hmm. because this is super complicated, right? to some extent, uh, it's super complicated in ways that neither of us could capture, right? We, we need other people involved in a conversation like this. But one thing that's striking to me, of course, is to some extent, you've mentioned DoorDash. To some extent, this is, it's a it's a feature or a consequence of our choices. We're making choices for these things, you know. So we as persons are making choices for things that are arguably increasingly impersonal. It's not like this is happening as a consequence of f- that are beyond human action it's human action that is contributing to this and it's it's contributing in manifold ways right one is simply the choice to stay at home and order in you know and have somebody else bring you your food rather than go to the restaurant um, or cook for yourself and your family right Uh, and i mean look there's really good reasons why we do these things right it's convenient you can bring a world of restaurants into your home or something. But if it is, in fact, impersonal, it has at some arguably at its root personal action. Right. Some personal action. Now, one could argue that there are larger structures that are inducing us to act in these ways. Right. And, and maybe, you, you know, you might be interested in advancing that argument. Right. But but that at that point, at some point, we're going to be talking about are we free or not. Right. Is there a free agency here or is the space for free agency uh, becoming increasingly constricted. I think that's one component of how to begin to think through the, the question you raised. On the other hand, there's, there are just these sort of interesting developments, um, again, that we seem to be somewhat complicit in. We're making choices or we seem inclined to favor certain ways of engaging each other. That are that are distant in some sense, right? And social media is the, an obvious example of this. I mean, look at you and me right now, right? We're doing mm-hmm. this. We're doing this virtually. On the one hand, right, it facilitates a conversation that you and I could not have in this way, and you know, um, except for having to travel to see each other, um, which is much less convenient and more costly in certain respects, right? It makes this much more available to people than it might otherwise be, and available, you know, almost in perpetuity. But on the other hand, we both know there's no conversation like the personal conversation where we're physically present to each other, capable of reading each other's body language, capable of seeing those moments when you want to cut me off and I want to cut you off. And right. And you kind of, you know, diminish your speaking in order to allow the other person uh, an entree into it. But why why are we choosing these, these things or are, or are we choosing these things? There are, as you know, people who argue we're not. Right. Um, I think of um, like uh, Jacques Ellul or Hans Jonas, you know, these late 20th century, mid late 20th century critics of technology who argue that increasingly human beings are subjects of a technological momentum that they can't resist. Right. So, you know, I might think we're free or freely choosing these things. These guys would argue, well, you're not actually right. Um, Right. There's a momentum here to technological progress that is impersonal, that is irresistible.
0: Now, there's no shortage of cultural criticism uh, in the Catholic world about lamenting the state of things, but there are people out there, and they're not always Catholic, and in many cases they aren't, who are making you know, real intentional choices about consumption and other things um, right. that, that are elevating higher values And deeper relationships, even if sometimes we view them as disordered. So what in your experience helps people get outside of even, you know, Catholics just prone to uh, embrace a short term utility maximization when it comes to their use of tech to think about things perhaps at at a higher level of intentionality and at the question of the good.
2: Right, there are there are really fascinating movements that are occurring. Right, um, some of them are things like the Bruderhof. Right, Bruderhof. Or, uh, yeah, yeah. We've know, had right? Peter um, Momsen
0: on the show. Yep.
2: Right. I mean, there, mm-hmm. right, there are these really fascinating um, stepping outsides of the stream or the momentum uh, mm-hmm. of um, of our culture that are occurring at that level. I can't help myself. This is a little bit of like you know the sort of blue collar roots or something, or you know the the Union Label roots. It's a little class privileged right mm-hmm. the, if i can afford a 5 dollar beer you know a craft beer I, I might do it in part by say, sort of justifying it or even thinking of it in terms of i'm stepping outside of the anheuser busch you know stream of mass produced beer that is you know much cheaper but that's a privilege to be able to to do to operate intentionally in that way and and we have to be you know careful as one you know, sort of thinks through one's own moral choices and so on what's What's happening here? Am I just consuming differently? Right? Am I actually just consuming differently? Or am I actually doing a sorts of intentional, habit-changing activity that I think you're you're pointing towards? And and that's the key to me, right? Is that what what has to be happening here is a kind of rehabituation into the way we engage the world. And I think again, this is what you're seeing in Francis and Benedict and so on, is that we need to rehabituate ourselves because a lot of the forces um, uh, that are operating in our lives uh, really are habituating us into consumers. Um, And again, I think technology is like the best example of this because it's just so oriented towards obsolescence, right? And, And reproduction, but it's not merely consumers in that respect, it's consumers almost holistic. One of the things I've noticed, the way people read is a kind of consumptive practice now, right? So it's not simply reading for the good of engaging the world and being open to different ideas, but reading for the good of I put a book on my shelf, like I consumed it and now I can spit it out in the conversation or maybe not even, but I, right. I've just simply engorged on it, you know, in a way I would a big Mac or a craft beer. So I think the key here is really rehabituation, but that comes again in part from what is real, a confrontation with the real, with the true, That challenges the way we're seeing the world, the way
0: we're engaging the world, and invites us
2: now to say, I've got to do this
0: differently. What might be two questions people ask themselves before they start using or habitually use a particular device or platform, uh, just in terms of fostering right relationships and not getting sucked into a more deeply impersonal dynamic? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I'm going to answer that question as a parent. I'm a parent of six, and it's a question I put to my children, and that is, what good are you getting out of this? Identify the good that you're getting from this. And often we'll engage technology as an instrument, right? And we'll think of it, you know, the sort of classic line, like, look, as an instrument, it's kind of neutral, right? I can use it for good, or I can use it for evil. I can use a shovel either for good, for planting a tree, or I can use it for something, you know, less good or even evil. Uh, as an instrument of violence, right, or um, to conceal something from other people, you know, to hide a treasure or something. And so we think of, you know, social media, for instance, okay, it's, it's neutral. I don't think that that goes far enough. I think there's something different about, or arguably at least different about social media, where, you know, as I ask my kids, like, what is the good that you get out of this? And they'll offer answers, but they're usually pretty thin. And even in the answering it, they kind of recognize, Um, that there's really not much good there, Uh, that there's, there's something about this, um, about this medium, about the way it it involves engaging other people. It's arguably anti-personal. Often, I'm sure you've experienced this, people will say, well, geez, the guy's a really good person. And, you know, in real life, online, you know, she or he, right, is, you know, I don't know what, he's Mr. Hyde at that point, right? And it's like, well, that's really instructive. I mean, I, I, I mean, that to me, that's still real life, right? You mm-hmm. know, it's still affecting other human beings and it's still affecting her or his character, right? So um, there's there's something about the, that medium that I think requires a better response to it than it's neutral and it can be used for good or ill. Um, it, it, it's not, most of these things are not merely neutral, right? They are habit forming. And, and I think we have to explore in, you know, those habits and really scrutinize whether they're conducing to our flourishing or diminishing us, uh, and diminishing us not merely as individuals, but as communities. And I think the evidence is in. I mean, I think the evidence is pretty clear. this is, I mean, look at what's happening in a republic, right? And a lot of it is social
0: media driven. Uh, not all of it, clearly, but a lot of it is. Dr. Capizzi, I have one final question for you. Freedom is an important good and an element of human flourishing because we have to freely choose the good uh, and the true. It's it's clear today, and I'll just uh, editorialize here and say people value security more than freedom, for sure. And I think the pandemic has clarified that, but we've been building in this country for 20 years now through the technology that big tech offers a, a security state, whether it's real ID to help us fly on planes safely or right. a surveillance state. The pandemic has accelerated that we're talking about vaccine passports and all of these things. The church though, when it has focused on discrete issues of analysis when we talk about the pandemic, it's been the ethics of vaccines. It hasn't said a lot about sort of the civil liberties questions that, that are at the intersection of the broader the advent and the continued development of the security state through the apparatus of big tech and what it both provides the government, but also corporations. How might the church begin to think through an an ethical framework for analyzing and responding to this? What are are your thoughts on that?
2: There are at least two things that we've not spoken well about uh, in a long time uh, in, in the church. And one of those is security. I mean, scripture is providential it's not security oriented security right if you just think of the language right to secure something right means to more or less control it right and that's not how we approach the world as Christians we don't approach it seeking control in fact we seek right we're really encouraged to let go of control of things and to allow God right to enter into our lives and to put ourselves in his hands so so that's one aspect of this. I think we've got to explore security. The other one we've talked about earlier, and that's authority. Uh, we just do not have, we don't have functioning institutions of authority that we can point to as models that are effective. We've, we've seen the collapse of authority. Uh, and authority is basically like telling, like, like if I, if you and I were in a relationship of authority, like you trusted me, for instance, as an authority on medicine. And I said, this is why you should take this you wouldn't need reasons, right? Your trust of me as, a, as an authority would move you to do what I tell you in that regard. Most of us don't, ha- don't understand authority in that way any longer for different, many, many different kinds of reasons. We've seen a collapse almost across the board, political authority, military authority, church authority, parental authority, education, right? I mean, like we're just, it's all suffering deeply uh, and because of that, we can't begin to think about in what ways ought political authority act well? You know, what would it mean for political authority to act well? And you know, I, mean, that, I think that's a lot of people's concern that this is more or less where we are um, is we're disposed towards this uh, and looking for that kind of authoritative seeming action. And it's not actually authority, it's something different. It typically is accompanied by violence and you know, uh, coercion rather than the instruments
0: that we associate with authority. When there's no authority, there's just power.
1: And, that's right. And
0: uh, the conflation of the two, uh, that's what the, one of the challenges we have today. Wow, right. a lot to chew on, Dr. Capizzi. Very grateful for this conversation. Uh, Dr. Joseph Capizzi, Director of the Institute for Humane Ecology and Professor of Theology at Catholic University of America. Where can our listeners go to learn more, Dr. Capizzi?
2: Yeah, so you can find the Institute for Human Ecology at ihe.catholic.edu. That's our website, ihe.catholic.edu.
0: And yeah, don't hesitate to join us. We're, uh, We're doing good things. Thanks so much for joining us on The Bridge Builder, Dr. Capizzi. We'll be back in a moment with this week's action item. Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Program, and now we're going to be joined by Kit Spiniak, our communications manager, who's going to share with us this week's action item. What do you have, Kit?
1: Yeah, so Sunday, September 26th, marks World Day of Migrants and Refugees. We can all agree the situation facing people on our southern border is an absolute crisis, and Congress has to do something to come together to find solutions. So right now in our action center, we have an action alert for you to take action, to send a message to your members of Congress, simply asking for them to pass comprehensive immigration reform, asking them to come together and find solutions. So you can find that by going to mncatholic.org forward slash action center and then click on the immigration action alert. Well, we are out of time for today, so make sure to tune in to our YouTube channel if you're listening online for any extended conversations. We don't always have time each week to get it all in to a short half hour. So make sure when you're online to click subscribe, and then you'll always be notified of our latest episodes.
0: Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, Important action item for you to connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, the Verkitzopenia at the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Thanks for tuning in. God bless your day.